from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to another episode of CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined uh, this week uh, by an expert that I'm really looking forward to talk to. Uh, We've hinted uh, on the subjects that uh, he's an expert in and uh, on the program a number of times. Uh, It's about industrial cybersecurity. So this is uh, power plants. Uh, This is your water grid. This is uh, all of those utilities that make our lives go uh, each and every day. And uh, nowadays, they're mostly all connected to the Internet which is good and kind of scary at the same time. My guest this week is a senior threat hunter at a company named Dragos here in the San Antonio area. Um, and uh, Dan, go ahead and please introduce yourself and give a little background. How did you get into this threat hunting stuff? Hey, thanks for having me here. So uh, how I got into it, actually, uh, I'm here from San Antonio. So I uh, moved here in middle school, um, went up actually to Baylor, started in the Air Force, Got assigned here, actually, and worked at the Air Force Third initially, actually with some of your previous guests with Chris Garretts and Jake Stoffer, which I know you had on here before. Spent a few years in the Air Force Third, kind of doing enterprise defense type stuff, so which you might expect at a big company. The Air Force is a huge company. Yeah. Um, hundreds of thousands of users, global network, huge challenge. From there, uh, actually went up to uh, Fort Meade and worked up there a few years, was a developer. And then uh, came back down as a planner um, a few months ago, separated. So uh, moved on to Dragos, and it's been great so far. So you're n- newly out here in the private sector. I am. Yeah. I am. I'm still uh, getting used and transitioning. So it's yeah. been a fun switch, though. Yeah, we um, uh, did a, a conversation with the folks at Bunker Labs as well. I don't know if you, you know any of them. Uh, helping a lot of the folks uh, figure out how to make the transition on the way out because it's a uh, difficult and different uh, than it is being on the other side of the uniform on every day. Yep. Um, I think the biggest thing is a culture shift. Uh, the good thing about being in the community, though, is just the the breadth and the width of experience you get. Um, it's hard to match um, what you get coming out. Yeah. So this is a, kind of a, a timely program as well. Uh, there's been a, a recent uh, attack or uncovering of a, a new malware impacting uh, power plant systems over in, in Eastern Europe this time, I've, I've heard about. Yep. So uh, actually, the first time it happened was uh, December 2015. And uh, at that time, about a quarter of a million people actually lost power. And the power only went down for an hour or two, so it wasn't too drastic. Um, but again, in 2016, almost a year later, it was a week before, again, the same attack happened. What was kind of worrisome about it, though, is there was a huge shift and kind of a huge uh, technologization or a huge upgrade in kind of the approach that they used, which worries us because we're seeing we're seeing these activity groups actually get better and actually do more. And so obviously us as a company, not just as a profit generating, but as, you know, citizens of the world and we use the. Um, catchphrase safeguarding civilization. I mean, power, water, that's needed for us to live and for our society to function. So Yeah, and you, you need the water to run the power plant. You need the power to run the water plant. Yep. So uh, <laughs> it only takes one domino to fall down and the whole thing comes toppling with it. Yep. 
Yeah. And so then this is, as we've mentioned this in the program a few times, is you have uh, San Antonio is a critical area. So you we've got some of our uh, military here, uh, Military City USA, a lot of cyber activity as well. And if you have uh, these folks that are serving their country and working on things, but their family lives here in town, and if San Antonio were to get attacked, then, I mean, everyone's human, um, even everyone in our military there that they're worried about their wives, their kids, what's going on at home. If, if the utilities are out here, the base has backup power. The base has backup water. The base has backup everything. Um, but the, if you go across town to where most of the folks are actually living, there's not a second power plant. Uh, there's not a second, uh, water treatment facility. They've got one that serves those different areas. Yep. And uh, another point, as a, as a proud Texan of this, uh, we're actually on our own power grid. So there's that northeastern power grid. Yeah, the, kind the of one the, that fails all the time. Yeah. Then there's the western, and then there's Texas. So yeah. as Texans, we should also be worried about uh, keeping our grid safe. Yeah. And and as you mentioned, these short power outages, if we have anyone listening on iHeartRadio out in California that um, lived there back when, when I did, we had rolling blackouts, which were kind of a, a uh, the power company mandated to not overcook their own grid and their own capabilities uh, when we had uh, high temperatures and uh and not enough power um, built because they've had a hard time building power plants out there in California. Uh, so everyone had their power out for four hours a day in residential neighborhoods all across the state for, I mean, it feels like it went on for a couple of years before they got that stuff cleaned up. Yeah. Um, and the good thing too, with, uh, I do want to point out for up front, the good thing with uh, security is a lot of the grid is designed to be very redundant. And so just the amount of engineering that goes into building the grid itself and securing the grid, there's a lot that does go into it. Um, it's not trivial to do what happened in the Ukraine. And that's also what makes it interesting and also, quite frankly, a bit scary. Because what happened in the Ukraine, it wouldn't work. The malware that we analyzed, we got the malware last Thursday. And so we had about 72 hours to rip apart the malware to figure out what it did, how it did it, and write a report on it. And the malware we got, without any edits, it would work against the Ukraine, it would work against parts of Europe. They would have to do some stuff to work with the technologies in, here in the US. That said, with how modular and how the adversary moved kind of in the last year, um, that's where we're kind of concerned. Yeah, and if we go back to uh say the 1950s this is pre-internet this is pre-wide rollout of computers that we had electricity we had a power grid uh but it was um all in call i'll call it a bit more of an analog world versus a digital power grid it wasn't technically analog but it was much more analog than it is today so from a safety perspective it's a whole lot harder to hack something that's not plugged into the internet that doesn't have computers why has it been the the utility grids why have they gone and added computers into their systems it seems like it just makes a bigger risk makes them more vulnerable so it also uh while it does add some risk it also does allow them to do things like uh, remote management and so you might have substations that are spread out and so uh just outside of the design of it, having the ability to control those substations remotely allows them to get the grid back up if there might happen to be an event. What happened actually in the Ukraine when the grid went down is they actually dispatched people out to go reconnect and to go uh, close those breakers again. Because um, in grid terms, open means the breakers, um, there's no contact, so power can't flow. Close means it's actually flowing. 
And so one of the features that was kind of exploited or taken advantage of this was that whole opening and closing function. So the attackers open, jumped on there and used valid traffic to say, hey, go ahead and open the grid. So a lot of uh, a lot of the remote connection exists for the electrical companies to be able to more easily deal with kind of the size and complexity of the modern grid. And and so it, a lot of the the brownouts or power outages you may have had back in those the days before these things were online, they can now detect that mm-hmm. they can detect a, a brownout coming and they can reroute electricity. They can do things. Mm-hmm proactively to, to make the grid more reliable on a day-to-day basis, which is why they added the technology. And is that my understanding back of what you're saying? Yep, they have that. And they've also added technology. Sometimes the grid will fix itself. And so there are safety systems out there that'll go ahead and do what it needs to do. So if it needs to reroute power to all, at all, it'll reroute power. And um, yeah, but that yeah. said, there always can be the operator in the loop. Obviously, you never want to remove the ability for someone to go out and do that. Yeah. And so the, the attacks thus far on the power grids uh, sound like reversible attacks. Someone's not getting into the uh, control software in a nuclear reactor causing a meltdown yet. Or we, we haven't seen an attacker getting into even a, whatever, a, a coal-fired power plant where they overcook the boilers and cause an explosion. We did see, so there was a German steel mill, um, I think it was 2014 or 2015, that actually was attacked, and there was cyber physical damage then, and so there was actually an explosion. In the Ukraine, there wasn't an explosion, there was no physical damage, it was just opening and closing those breakers. And in the malware we analyzed, all the malware right now can do is open and close those breakers. Um, But again, with the modularity of that malware, we're worried that People might go down the path of doing firmware updates or, you know, you push a bad firmware update and suddenly the device is essentially as good as a brick. Yeah, I think everyone's experienced that with a a cell phone or with uh, some other electronic device around their house where they try to update the firmware and it never powers back on. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and I mean, same thing with the circuit breakers. If you're listening out there, the power grid is like a giant version of what you've got in your house. And you've got the, that panel somewhere where you've got the circuit breakers and you can open and close those. Uh, the power grid, now there's software that can allow the grid operators to open and close those remotely. And that's what these malware writers were taking advantage of. That's correct. Yeah. So you're listening to 1200 WAI. This is CyberTalk Radio, and I'm joined this week by Dan Gunter, a senior threat hunter at a company called Dragos uh, here in the San Antonio area. They also have offices up in uh, the uh, D.C. area as well, correct? Yep. So actually, uh, the company moved up to Maryland, so I'm the only one here in San Antonio. But uh, Dragos Security originally did start down here. And then uh, when we incorporated our corporate structure and our CEO, Rob Lee, that actually used to live here in San Antonio, moved up to Maryland. So mostly companies out of Maryland, but we have also quite the rem- remote workforce that's away from Maryland. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, the beauty of the Internet these days is uh, as long as you have an Internet connection, you can be virtually in the same place as your team. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, and you're going through focusing on these uh, industrial systems. We've seen um, some of the attacks on the power grid. We've seen uh, the uh, reports out of Iran with the Stuxnet thing that may or may not have come from the U.S. government. Um, I don't know that we ever officially claimed that, yes, it was ours or, yes, that was us. Uh, and 
So we've started to see a few of these uh, things now. Uh, is is this really headed in an area from uh, the bad guy perspective where they're doing a lot of, of research because they've kind of gotten done with writing computer viruses? You know, and that's where it's kind of interesting, too, because uh, this has become kind of a space where national policy and national strategy can be expressed, whether you're the U.S. or whether you're a smaller group. And so relying on society's kind of reliance on different things, this definitely is an area that might be exploited. And um, that's where it is worrisome, because this this was the fourth instance we've basically seen of something kind of going against industrial control systems. So. Yeah. And I mean, so far in the program, we've been talking about um, power, but I mean, I guess if you get into power and down into the power plant, some of these power plants are dams um, and like the, the spill gates or floodgates on a dam could potentially be controlled these days by a computer as well. Yep. And I, I believe some of them are, I haven't been out to any dams, but definitely controllable. Yeah. So as you start to think through all of these, these areas where, uh, we have large-scale uh, systems that we rely on for public safety, and these are now getting integrated and connected into the Internet. And from a management perspective, from a, a just general day-to-day -day reliability, um, and this, this is, is one as we work to solve uh, these problems for operational efficiency, day-to-day -day reliability, you, we potentially create the, the black swan type effect where uh, you have a large-scale risk, very low probability, um, but if, in the event that it does happen, you have a, what is a, a major incident. Now, in the U.S., we have a deregulated power grid. We have deregulated power in general. It's not a national power company. It's not a national grid. And you'd mentioned the grid here in Texas, so, uh, but we have multiple uh, utility companies um, all across the state as well. Are they running different types of systems, or are they pretty homogenized like if if i was a malware writer and i'm writing for computers i can write malware for windows and i'm going to be able to infect four out of five computers if i'm writing malware for an industrial control system is it a, a homogenous market like pcs yeah so it, and it really depends on the control system that the company is running and uh before i jump into this it might be good to overflow or to go over kind of the core parts of the power system and so what you have is you have generation, which are your power plants that are actually producing power. Those go into transmission. And so the big lines you sometimes see that are moving power from all of those plants to maybe a sector. Those big metal towers that you can kind of hear a buzzing from? Those big metal towers. Okay. Um, and then you have a distribution. And so your substations in the Ukraine case actually fall under distribution, um, which push the power from the transmission lines, the big lines, they'll downstep and then actually push it out to your house. Um, yeah. And so. So those substations are the little things you'll see around town that like might be the size of like a regular residential house. They've got a bunch of electrical coming into it. They've got like a typically a fence around it that says, hey, uh, genius, don't go in and touch any of this stuff because you're going to hurt yourself. Yep. And so in the substation attack in Ukraine, in interestingly enough, why it only affected a, a quarter of a million people, which isn't much when you're talking about Kiev at the same time that's just a substation and yeah the, the kind of scary part is what happens if you what happens if they do do their homework and go after that transmission or um, generation the generation piece yeah 
so uh, circling back around to the the system, so we've got the different components: generation, transmission, and distribution. And and so, at each of those layers, are they homogenous across power companies, or is it homo- like inside of one power company? Do I have a consistent set of software that goes all the way through all three pieces for me? So there is some uh, there is some comparable part, and there's a lot of difference. So a lot of the control systems are going to come from a specific vendor. And the vendors are going to vary a bit by region. And then the choice of what each company decides to use is going to vary. But ultimately, when you're looking at end systems that are controlling them, they're Windows boxes, they're on domain controllers. And so what you have is the introduction of kind of the traditional Windows IT security world into a refinery, into power, into that area. Luckily, it's not a Windows domain that's generally connected to the Internet, hopefully. Hopefully, usually there's layers between there. Um, sometimes there's not, but those are luckily the rare cases. So uh, these uh, transmission management networks are generally done what we call like a private wide area network versus uh, directly internet connected? Right, and you have models like one of the big industry models and academic model is the Purdue model. And so you'll see that a lot kind of in factories and refineries, um, that type of environment where you have layer five and four are generally your corporate network. Layer four is a little more focused on whatever the production going on, and that's handled by an IT or information technology staff. When you get into layer three, two, and one, layer three is generally where your human machine interfaces, your HMIs, what the operators are actually on, your engineering stations that control a lot of the configuration of the programmable logic controllers the devices actually out there um, doing the work and some of those other boxes so and then on layer two and one are your actual programmable logic controllers um, the things that sense in the environment that's something going on but also actuate so they'll act depending on the settings that they see those are all controlled by layer three in layer three, two, and one, that's controlled by your uh, operations technology staff, your OT staff. In between IT and OT, it's kind of a different skill set. And so sometimes it's hard to find people that understand both sides and that can understand the trade-offs and security that go between those layers. And, and so those, those operational control systems and technology systems are typically not internet connected or should not be internet connected. So some an attacker would need to go in and get physical access to some point, whether it's in a substation, whether it's um, at generation, whether it's uh, some um, monitoring station along a transmission uh, line and be able to plug into the computer there, hack that computer, and then be able to spread their malware across the network. Or generally what you'll see is you'll see someone enter the corporate network through something like spear phishing. Um, They'll enter the corporate network, they'll live there a bit, they'll try to figure out where the firewall is that goes to kind of that layer three, two, and one, the production network, and then they'll figure out how to get around that firewall. Um, See if maybe there's domain trust and how the network's built. Maybe both sides trust the same credentials. Maybe someone's using a remote desktop protocol or some other functionality on the network that allows them just to jump straight in. That's generally how it works. Just because a lot of the networks do have firewalls between the IT and OT part, and there is a lot of good authentication that goes on. 
so there are some bridges to connect those two. It's not like if you go over into the military world, you have some networks that are not allowed to connect to other networks. You're not allowed to hook that firewall up between certain different categories or classifications of networks. They, it sounds like they don't have that same strict control enforcement inside the utility systems. Yeah, and you know, people always say air gapping, but air gapping doesn't always work kind of in the real world construct. Um, you know, they need that connection. Um, and it's just easier to secure that. Yeah, it's interesting. And in even in that air gapping world, you'll have folks that are potentially allowed to take a computer from one network and then they can take it over and plug it into the other network. It's just, it's it was never connected to both at the same time. But if you were connected to a spot where that computer got something bad on it and you went and plugged it into the super safe, secure network, you're bringing the bad stuff inside of there. Uh, so it, it, you still have to have uh, vetting at every endpoint and at every connection going into a network, even if you do have that air gap. I mean, is that some of what you're kind of hinting at there? Yeah, that is. And I mean, the four cases that we've seen of industrial control system focused malware, one of them was air gapped. I mean, Stuxnet was designed to jump over air gaps. Your yeah. other three, Ukraine twice um, in the German steel plant, those obviously were using more of that Purdue model um, style of attack probably yeah is on the the german um steel plant uh, one was there any um, organization that took credit for that or uh, any background that came out in the research there you know i haven't dived too deep into that i've read the stories and i've kind of seen what's happening but i haven't been able to jump too far in and so when we did get the malware on thursday for the ukraine stuff that's where it was really exciting because we were actually able to see the tools that were used in the attack. Yeah. If you want to learn a little bit more about uh, breaking down and analyzing the malware, um, after our news traffic and weather update here at the bottom of the hour, we'll uh, be able to, to dig into that stuff uh, in a little more technical detail in the second half of the program. Uh, I'm your host, Brett Pyatt. Uh, you're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and I'm joined this week by Dan Gunter, a senior threat hunter and researcher uh, focused on industrial control systems. And this is a topic we've um, hinted on and uh, had uh, light conversations with about some of our guests in the past. Uh, this uh, program, we're going uh, kind of deep into this topic, breaking down how the power grids are laid out and uh, then what some of these real uh, risks uh, are out there. So, uh, Dan, is going in, you mentioned that there's uh, an IT department inside of the utility company, just like every company, and then they've got the operational technology team. You have uh, these two teams working together, but you don't necessarily always have that, that shared um, skill and knowledge level. Um, at the same time, uh, here across the U.S., people talk all, uh, always about, well, the price of electricity is going up and all these things. Um, are From your perspective, are the utility companies getting enough um, funding into their uh, information technology and operational technology to be able to build these things in a safe and secure manner? It's tricky because uh, I don't know much about uh, their budgets, but the good thing is that people are starting to pay attention a lot more to and try to become industrial control system security experts. So kind of the manning pool and the available people are starting to build up and the people being interesting. This week alone, one of the email lists I'm on that's not ICS specific actually had three or four posting for, postings for energy companies. So the demands ba or the demands out there. Yeah, is, I mean, this is, is one like whether it's uh, whatever if your power's uh, ten cents um, a kilowatt hour or eight cents or nine cents a kilowatt hour, 
Um, I, I think I'd much rather have power that's ten and a half cents a kilowatt hour if that the uh, security team is getting funded properly, so that we know that um, we're not uh, just waiting for the uh, the big uh, attack to happen that takes the whole thing offline for potentially a a real long period of time. And the good thing, though, is, too, there are a lot of standards and other recommendations that are out there that people are following. So it's not an area that's completely empty right now. Luckily. Yeah. And and it's, I guess this is uh, you mentioned standards across there. So there's this Purdue model where a lot of folks have set things up but with um, multiple power grids in the U.S. It, it, in healthcare and other areas, there's things like HIPAA or in the, mm-hmm. the credit card industry's gotten together themselves and made uh, PCI compliance. Is there a common set of controls and standards that each of these utility companies have to follow from a regulatory mandate? I believe so. I mean, when we go in and do a lot of assessments, we do see a lot of um, references to those. Um, I should point out that in my role, I'm still learning a lot of them. I'm obviously more on the technology side where uh, some of the people I work directly with came out of that world, and so they understand all those standards. Yeah. And so there are a lot of standards we see both imposed kind of by groups and then also that companies have come up with because no one wants to admit to being hacked. It's not PR you want right now. We are breaking for the uh, bottom of the hour news, traffic, and weather. I will be back with Dan Gunther, and we're going to dive into uh, dissecting malware after the break. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brent Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined this week by Dan Gunther, uh, a senior threat hunter at Dragos. We uh, talked about industrial control systems and uh, specifically dived uh, deep into the power grids and how those work uh, before the break. If you missed that portion of the program, uh, you can listen to the rebroadcast online. It'll be up Tuesday. Uh, online at www.cybertalkradio.com, as well as on iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and our YouTube channel. So in this segment of the program, uh, we're going to go down deep into the uh, technical weeds. Uh, So if you uh, do happen to uh, follow along but get lost on a a component or two as we talk through things, uh, there'll be a, a blog post up as well kind of summarizing uh, many of the things that we cover here and uh, with links out for further reading and research for you uh, to be able to kind of catch up on any of the points in the conversation uh, where uh, we may hit into something that you hadn't heard of or that you do want to learn more about. Uh, So uh, check out that blog post. It'll go up online. You can uh, find it from our Twitter feed. Um, We're CyberTalk Radio on Twitter as well as uh, Facebook. Uh, Our page there will have uh, links and everything to that post uh, after the episode. Uh, you can also uh, catch all of our past uh, broadcasts uh, where we've uh, talked about all uh, sorts of things through education, through public policy. Uh, we've um, had conversations about industrial control system threats and risks um, as well in other uh, programs with uh, folks uh, such as Congressman Hurd uh, or uh, Commissioner Tommy Calvert here from uh, the Bear County. Uh, so uh, lots to learn about and lots to, to keep talking about this uh, industrial control system because if we, we don't uh, talk about it, people are just going to assume it's safe um, and we're not going to worry about it. And like, you shouldn't spend your life worried um, and paranoid 
Um, but uh, caution and uh, uh, preventative uh, measures are important uh, for us to go through uh, to ensure that the, the hackers aren't able to do uh, what they've been able to do to many of our kind of office computer networks. We don't want that happening to our industrial systems. So thank you very much uh, for joining us this week, Dan. And uh, the malware uh, we're going to dive into, and we can use the example from uh, the Ukraine here that we talked about before the break. So uh, you said you guys got this stuff back on Thursday. So um, I hand you a, a malware. As a, an analyst, how do you start breaking that down and, and taking a look at it? Yeah, so as a timeline, basically what happened on Thursday is the antivirus company ESET reached out to us, and they told us they believed they had the attack tools used from the Ukraine 2016 intrusion. And to us, this is particularly interesting because in 2015, what happened in the Ukraine was the actors used more traditional malware to jump on and then just used remote desktop to actually move the mouse around. And so the attacker actually had to be on the computer to carry out the attack. This year, the sophistication, or in 2016, December, sophistication stepped up. And so the attacker didn't have to be there. The attacker actually loaded up their malware onto the boxes with a configuration file and left. And so this is a big change to us because they go from having to be there now to being able to plant this and being able to distribute this out. If you only have a certain number of people on the keyboard, you can only affect a certain number of computers at a given time. If you can automate it out more like that, you can hit a lot more than you could before. So, but yeah, on Thursday we got hashes to what we believe the malware was or what ESET thought it was. So we took those hashes, we were able to obtain the files. We obtained the files and then basically spent Thursday, Friday, Saturday going through and understanding what the malware did. So we reversed engineer it, engineered it with Ida Pro, which allows you to take a binary, a computer file, a runnable one, and kind of turn it back into source code. And it allows you to go through and kind of see what's going on. And it's not, it's not a particularly easy process. It's one, it sounds really easy saying it, but it takes a lot of hours because you don't just get the nice text copy that went in. You kind of get the machine code, what the machine's saying, and yeah. you have to make sense of it, so. Yeah, so um, as uh, from a, a computer programming perspective, I think many folks are, are familiar now with writing stuff you you get to write in a programming language with nice variable names you can kind of read things even if you're not a computer programmer you can kind of follow along this might be a function that says print out text string and it takes a variable a string that is the text that it's going to print on the screen and you can kind of read along so when you you go to uh, reverse engineer to decompile software um, you take it, the machine code it turns it back maybe into an assembly language and then Maybe it goes from assembly back up to uh, C or C++ or um, some of these now go into a Java or other languages. It'll try to abstract it back up so that you could then compile it back down again and go, hey, yep, I actually decompiled it properly. I built something that will compile back into the same program. But you lose all the variable names because inside of these, these binaries, it doesn't store all the nice long function names. As that would take more space. It would make the binary bigger. So when it compiles it all down into machine code, um, you end up going back on that reverse engineering. You get functions that have a single letter for their name. You get variables that are a single letter. Um, every once in a while, they may leave some debug information in there. They may leave variable names, but 
Um, if the uh, attacker or the, the person building the binary is not sloppy, um, you're having to go back and really start to go from just the very beginning of the program, figure out where the start is, and then start tracing down. Well, here's the here's a list of 27 variables. Now, what are they actually storing in these variables and what are they doing with them? So you start working through this uh, pretty manual process because even some of the tools like Ida Pro don't automate a lot of the the thinking that has to go into uh, reverse engineering a system. Right, right. And that's where uh, a strong background in computer science or programming, something like that can help. Um, it's certainly not required. But the more experience you have coding and looking at code and understanding how things work, that definitely helps. The challenge is when you're dealing with more sophisticated threats and the type of threats that go against ICS and are successful in my book are sophisticated because these types of attacks really require two entire domains of knowledge. You have to be knowledgeable about developing malware, which is a whole topic in itself. And you also have to be knowledgeable in some level of industrial control system process. So you have to know how a transformer yard works. You have to know how a refinery works. And blending those two together is not, it's not a simple task. You're not going to see, you know, the kid hacker you hear about on the news likely isn't going to be able to develop a tool itself. It's going to take someone with both kind of that computer science level set of skills and then maybe like a electrical or chemical engineering. So, Yeah. And and we've talked on, on other episodes about, I mean, some of these tools to build just basic computer malware now, I mean, it's almost drag and drop uh, to, to build a basic uh, malware app. So you can uh, feed in a list of exploits. You can go buy those or you can download them off of a number of dark web sites um, and then you can drag and drop here's the exploits i want to put on my malware so i want it to test for these and then if it successfully gets in here's how i want it to try to spread to other systems or here's what i want it to do to the system that it it, it gets into um, so that piece is on just general kind of windows mac even nowadays if you have an apple computer out there um, the the days of you're completely safe because no one's writing malware for computer, they're over. Um, and the Mac OS is not magically immune to malware. It's just it was not being targeted nearly as much as the Windows operating system has been over the years, just from a, a numbers perspective. If you're an attacker, um, and it's like we were talking earlier on this program, the industrial control system computers are Windows computers hooked up to Windows domains. They're not Macs. So the attackers in the uh, industrial control system hacking world or writing malware and writing systems to, to go into Windows computers. But um, this building the basic pieces of malware now is, is starting to get easier from a, a assembly tool, but well-secured systems are blocked from most of those um, simple building pieces as well. If you're not patching and updating and, and doing all of the basic hygiene, though, you're vulnerable to a a wide set of attackers that do not have to be highly sophisticated these days. Right, and that's where, in some of these environments, because if you use like a refinery as an example, a refinery is not going to patch while they're producing. They're going to wait for a maintenance period and then do all the IT work they need to do inside that maintenance period. And that's where having a strong defensive infrastructure, having things like host level monitoring, network level monitoring, looking at what's going between that IT and OT side of the network, looking at trust, looking at the remote protocols. All of those kind of questions are really important to ask. 
and a lot of companies are asking those right now um, and have been for a while they they have good policy on that you know but that that subset of companies doesn't represent unfortunately all of the industry yeah so as uh, going into the the malware so uh, you get in and we've you've got it decompiled now yep. and you're starting to work through figuring out what um, all the the different variables are and what they do. Uh, what are you in there looking for as you're starting to uh, to dig through the the hay pile? So what we look at is kind of the functionality. How does this design to work? Um, when you're talking about Windows, you're talking about Windows uh, interface calls, and so they're calling down to the operating system to do things like create network sockets to send traffic, or create a socket to send uh, HTTP requests, or write a file to the disk. And all of the kind of actions that happen on the computer happen because of those um, API calls. And so we look for those and kind of backtrace those to say, hey, this type of file is being created. Okay, now we know this is the functionality that creates the file. Okay, let's go one step higher. And then if you go enough steps higher, you eventually find the menu or you find kind of the core functionality. And if you look for enough of kind of the activities that the code does, it kind of starts to give you a bigger picture, but it really is a process of going through and initially guessing, and sometimes you're wrong or quite a bit, and then going back and saying, no, this is actually what it's doing. So it's a trial and error, but also a discovery. Yeah, and and so inside of the computer operating system, uh, it, it used to be that applications were potentially allowed to talk directly to the hardware. Um, they could... Um, even uh, go bypass what's called a driver, um, which is the general interface that allows all applications to talk to different hardware components. But apps were allowed to go down directly to talk to hardware. Now, most modern operating systems block that. Um, they force you to go through that API layer. So this gives you, from a, a malware hunting perspective, a consistent set of things to go look for. Now there's a limited number of ways to save a file to disk, or there's a limited number of ways to open up a network socket. If you uh, go back to the initial Windows um, 3.0, this is going back quite a while, uh, Windows did not ship with a, a network stack. Uh, Windows 3.0, you had to install, especially if you wanted TCP IP, you had to install your own separate TCP IP networking stack. So this was not part of the operating system back in, in the um, earlier computing days. Now, um, these systems, you, you have all of those core protocols for network connections, for writing files, for um, interfacing um, out of uh, that kind of application sandbox is now um, part of a, a foundation class of um, core API calls and libraries to go look for. So uh, some of that, it speeds up the ability for programmers to to write applications but it also helps on the the hunting side of things so you've got a more defined list to go look for right right and with us how hunting's different for us is we're focused uh at dragos we're focused at looking at the kind of ot side of the network and so our bread and butter is kind of understanding the industrial um, protocols the protocols you won't see on a traditional it network but helping secure understand how to find people inside of those and then uh and then from there kick the threat out so. yeah uh yeah because in many of those systems you're not running a traditional tcp ip network when you get over to the the ot side of things has uh 
TCP IP while efficient um, at the computing level and good to build a, a big uh, internet out of, uh, there's a lot of overhead. So like in, in industrial embedded systems, you're trying to be as efficient as you can with um, absolutely everything um, and both efficient and simple. Um, because the more lines of code you have, the more complexity, the more, especially if you're going to go through double and triple checking everything so that you don't have vulnerabilities, um, adding in something as complicated as um, a TCP IP stack uh, creates a, a large attack surface area. Right, right. And that's where the Ukraine attack uh, 20, in 2016 was interesting because the malware that was used was modular. And so... What that allowed them to do is they had the back door, they had the launcher, and the back door, what that did was basically keep their presence on the box. The back door called the launcher, and what the launcher did was call different module, modules, so it was modular malware. And each of those modules was a different industrial protocol. So what the attacker did was actually build in the industrial protocol as modules, and so they were able to extend the platform. So what you had was IEC 101, which is one of the serial protocols that's found in um, transformer yards. And again, that's a serial protocol. And then you have uh, IEC 104, which is actually just the TCP IP version of 101. That means it works on the network, on the OSI model on our same networks that our computers at home work. And so what the attacker had was enough of an understanding of both protocols and you know, it, it was kind of an interesting design characteristic that they built in. And this is, is one, if uh, is you're listening through here, bridging this Windows network into the industrial systems, and they, Dan had mentioned the attacker, their first step was to uh, secure that a host, the one that they had created their launch pad effectively from. Um, we've had on uh, another guest, Chris Garrett's in the past, uh, talking about uh, malware hunting specifically and diving into this. And um, the sad news of the situation is attackers are inside of systems on average um, almost a half a year, maybe even more than a half a year before they're detected uh, with a lot of the measures that we have um, in place right now across enterprise and, and even these uh, industrial networks. So uh, it, it's it's one uh, where that attacker's got six months after getting into a host in a lot of cases to figure out what are the next steps to actually go cause problems from there. Right, right. And what's different with ICS, too, and there's this thing we call the cyber kill chain, which I'm not sure if Chris talked about that a lot, but uh, kind of it's kind of the steps the adversary has to do during the in, for a successful intrusion or through the life of it. And so you have your initial planning or reconnaissance, and that's where they go out and kind of understand the basics of the IT network. And at that point, they're not in the system at all. And so once they do their reconnaissance, they can actually turn around and then do their weaponization and targeting. So actually figure out which box am I going to go after, and the weaponization is what tools am I going to use? Do I need a zero day to get in there, which is a new exploit that the vendor doesn't even know about? Or can I just use something in Metasploit or another open source toolkit to get on the network? Um, and the important thing to point out there. The attacker's not going to waste a zero day or an unknown vendor exploit if they can use something in Metasploit. They're just going to use what's already freely available. Yeah, it's like in the the physical analogy. Um, if you're you're breaking into a, a building and you've got your lock picks with you, and the first step is you're going to try to turn the doorknob. If the door is unlocked, you're not going to get your lock picks out. Right, right. And a lot of people, it's hard when they see malware. 
and especially ICS malware in our case, we've seen a lot the last few days where people are like, oh, this isn't sophisticated. It doesn't have a zero day. And we're like, no, this is part of a later part. They already had access. They already, you know, got credentials from the domain controller yeah, or something like that. So, um, you know, and this is kind of the phase they would use a zero day at this phase when they're still initially going after the company. Um, from there, they would actually attempt to attack. So they would do their delivery, um, try to get the piece of malware on that actual network, whether it be through, you know, sending a bad PDF or some form of spear phishing. Um, that exploit or whatever they put in that spear phishing attempt gets them on. And that's where they're able to install or mo modify a setting to allow them to walk in. From that, they have access to the network. So they have C2 um, and they're able to act there. That is kind of a model that works for IT also. And so you would see that both in IT and in an ICS attack, most likely. Yeah. Where ICS kind of enters is, okay, now they're on the corporate network. Now they actually have to find where is production actually done or where is power generation actually controlled. And so from there, they're going to look around the corporate network, try to find the firewalls, try to find the connections, um, look for things like um, trust, see if you can exploit trust. And they're going to try to figure out how do I need to get into the actual industrial control network. From there, they're also going to gather information because they have to know things like what are the models of devices being used? What do I need to actually develop next to move on? And in that step, once they've done all of that developing and testing, because then they have to go back and actually develop something to cause whatever effect they want to cause, they have to then deliver it install it and execute it. And so the malware that we analyzed, we believe was actually that very last part. It was only the part that was designed for the ICS attack. All the calls in there assume that they already had Windows credentials. Yeah. And I mean, to carry out an attack against an industrial control network, it's going to take this scope, like you said, more than six months likely just to understand what you need to do. Because even if you have something that works against a generic industrial control center, it's not guaranteed to work against that specific deployment. Yeah, is and and each of the deployments you're going to have different setups, different configurations. Um, that that one that if you uh, look at um, power plants um, or water treatment plants, uh, they're all built in um, kind of like a looking at high rises around downtown in a city. There's generally not seven high rises that all look exactly the same. Um, they were mostly they're all built at different points in time, and each uh, build out required uh, a different set of decisions to be made. Along which I'll introduce some different components uh, through uh, each of those build outs. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, it's it's. As you're, it's interesting as you, you go through um, on this, the malware getting into the industrial control piece and uh, from that IT network and from the connection to that, and this applies in industrial systems or back through into just a regular office building, uh, the attacker potentially can do things such as like disable everyone's badge access to the facility. So now you've you've attacked the industrial piece, but they're on that network and you have the badge access computers are connected to that network. The actual production uh, equipment is connected to the same network. Uh, this is is one where having separate firewalls, having separate zones 
being able to isolate and contain um, an attacker or requiring them to to really break into a whole bunch of separate areas to really um, cause wide-scale problems or uh, problems that will spread across your business process for being able to to deal with it because you might go well you know what like we can just manually go reset the breakers well you can't manually reset the breakers if everyone's badge access the building's disabled now you're you're going to have to then fall back to well who has the physical keys to be able to key into the building and which may be a very limited number of people uh versus the people that can badge into to each of these areas so um it's it's one where as you're planning out um, any complicated system with technology rollout, uh, you really should be um, getting together as a group uh, and running a tabletop scenario. And you should be having conversations where like you get out all of what like what are the worst ideas like with your own insider knowledge of your system. What's the worst things you can think about that you could do to cause problems to to wreak havoc inside of there? Because you don't want to make the assumption that your attacker knows less than you do. Like, hopefully they do know less, and because of that, it gives you some extra advantage, but you don't want to make the assumption that they do know less. Because um, security through obscurity is not a way to keep things safe in the long run. So if you're uh, excited about um, all of these things, interested in this, if you happen to be uh, have some expertise in this, uh, Dan, who's uh, Dragos looking to, to hire, expand your team these days? Yeah, so we basically have three parts of the company. So uh, any of those three parts we're looking in. So everything from our engineering team that designs our product that we actually have out, that's kind of the core part of the company. And then the other two parts of our company are more service-based, and that's in the threat operations center of the Intel side. And so I'm on the threat operations side as a hunter. Um, our Intel side, also hiring, looks for people with you know, Intel backgrounds that can understand a lot of the material and write good reports on that essentially and go out and find threats and then uh, product side obviously development and security experience so yeah so if you're uh, looking it's dragos.com d-r-a-g-o-s dot c-o-m uh, you can find them online there and uh, get involved in uh, helping secure our uh, nation and, and really probably the infrastructure worldwide 